coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. So we are on a, a ditch, an acequia, and every year we meet, all the neighbors meet, and we clean it out. And it's primarily Hispanic people. And so I asked the mayodomo, the guy in charge of the ditch, how long have people been doing this? And he said, our records go back only to 1690. This community has been working together for irrigation. So there are Hispanic names here that dang near go back to the conquistadors. That was Larry Hersman dropping some Taos history back to New Mexico for some fly fishing and powerful side stories today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. How are things going today? If you have a quick idea for an intro, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, check in with me, Dave, at wetflyswing.com and give me a, uh, an idea or two. I'd love to incorporate that into the start of the show here and would love to hear uh, from you to hear where you're coming from. Jackson Hole Fly Company is a new kind of fly shop. They design and manufacture their own high quality rods, reels, gear, and over a thousand fly patterns. We recently had Greg on, the founder of Jackson Hole Fly Company, and we had a great episode, talked about a little bit about their background and what they're, how they're giving back uh, to the movement and everything that's going on good. So definitely check that one out. We love supporting great companies like Jackson. You can support uh, us and them right now if you go to jhflyco.com swing. You get 25% off right now, your order. 25% off of anything you buy at Jackson. Would love if you could support them and support us in one simple, easy click. Larry Hurstman takes us on a wild ride to hear about the unique style of spay rods and the trout spay, shorter spay rods that he's created uh, with the focus on the New Mexico area. Larry sheds uh, quite a bit of light on uh, the San Juan River today. We get some tips and tricks there. Plus, we'll find out why he created this rod brand around the spay game, but it's, a, it's got a little different tweak. So we dig into a little bit of that today. It's going to be, this is a fun one. Stay tuned as we jump into a brief conversation about Los Alamos, uh, the atomic bomb, Larry's role in researching microorganisms, and the solution to pollution. Here he is, Larry Hersman from TausRods.com. How's it going, Larry? Oh, wonderful. And Dave, once again, thank you so much for this opportunity. Nice, nice. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're glad to have you on here. We're gonna dig into some on the um, the rods that you have. We connected at the uh, the Denver show. You were doing some casting instruction, and uh, and we were talking uh, two handed rods. And two handed rods for trout is a real focus. You hear a lot about trout spay and all that. So we're gonna hopefully serve up some casting uh, tips on that end. But uh, before we get there, take us briefly back to how you first got into fly fishing, and then we'll take it into the rods. Um. A friend and I decided that we had had it with our small town in northern Idaho growing up there and having to work there every summer. So between our junior and senior years of college, we picked a point on the map that we could go the furthest, drive the furthest and still speak English. And we ended up in Anchorage, Alaska. On the way, Jack taught me how to fly fish and the first fish that I caught it actually was in the Yukon, was uh, Arctic grayling. Um, and I have been a devoted fly fisherman ever since. That was 50 years ago that we did that. Wow. So I've been at this a while. Um, we ended up fighting a forest fire on the Kenai Peninsula. And in our off time, we took those dinky little fly rods to the Kena River when King Salmon were running. Mm -hmm. And we had a snowball's chance in hell <laughs> of landing a King Salmon. But I did hook one and I had it on for about 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, but that was an epiphany. <laughs> that, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Marvelous fish. So that's, um, Dave, how long I've been fly fishing and what got me started. That's it. Okay, good. So you, so you had your lasting experience, and then you're in northern Idaho. And then take us to how you go from uh, northern Idaho over to Taos, because that's a, a pretty unique area. Uh, northern Idaho was uh, college and then graduate schools um, in different schools. Um, I moved to Los Alamos and became a staff member at Los Alamos National Lab 
and then retired about oh several years ago but five years ago my wife and i relocated from from there to taos the appeal of taos is significant for many many reasons um it's stunningly beautiful the views it's culturally uh very interesting it's multiracial um it has world-class skiing and fishing both in the Rio Grande and the feeder streams, um, the Red River, the Rio Chiquito, and so on. And then just over the mountain range lies the San Juan River, which I'm sure many of your listeners know is really good. It is. Yeah, that's the one out of all. And there's a few big rivers you hear a lot about, but the San Juan, you know, of course you have the San Juan worm, right? Which is probably maybe the most, yeah. the infamous pattern, right? The infamous fly pattern. Yeah, I think you could throw out anything that looks like a worm, and it, it works. Um, yeah, it's a it's a great tie to have, a great fly to have. That's awesome. So the San Juan, and maybe if we have time, we'll dig into some of that uh, today as well. Uh, and so you're in this cool area, and um, and then talk about how. So how did you transition from? Because you're now you're doing some instruction with two handed, and that's a big uh, segment of our audience, or in Trout Spay and all of this. How did you go from single hand into, into the uh, the two handed game? If first I um, I started spay uh, fishing for steelhead and salmon in the Skeena River um, a dozen years ago, and. Could and as you know, and your and your listeners know, you can spay cast uh, all day long. Um, you know, you get tired standing uh, for other reasons. But a few years ago, I developed shoulder problems, which precluded me from doing single hand casting, normal trout rod single hand casting. And I got to thinking, can I modify normal sized trout rods? to utilize spay casting techniques. So that's how I got to where I'm at now with Tausch rods, that mm-hmm. shoulder shoulder injuries that are not repairable uh, or um, made better by physical therapy or surgery um, led me to developing these shorter uh, trout rods, spay rods. And are these all focused on two-handed trout rods? Yes. The rods have one unique feature in that both the five weight, nine foot, and the seven and a half foot have removable lower grips. So you can convert this rod to single hand casting if you want. Yeah, we'll get into that. No, that's good. So, and that's the cool thing because trout spay, you know, is definitely a, a key word you hear a lot about out there, right? Trout spay, people are interested in it, swinging flies for trout, things like that. And you, I'm guessing, do some of that as well. But is this all for you? Is it focused on like trout spay? Is that what you're thinking with these two-handed rods? Yeah, these are, you know, on available right now, the trout spay rods tend to be longer. They tend to be 10, 11 feet long, uh, down to zero weight. Mm-hmm. But commonly, you'll find an 11 weight, 11 foot, three weight rod. Well, as you know. A spay rod, you add two or three weights to the actual weight of the rod. So you have an 11-foot rod that advertises a three-weight. In truth, because of the stiffness of the butt end of the rod, um, it's a five-weight. Our rods are true five- and three-weight rods. The five-weight is nine feet long, and the three-weight is seven-and-a-half feet long. So they're different trout spay rods in that they're not long rods. You can take them to a stream, get through the brush, and make it with a, a normal size rod. When you're going to a dinky little three-weight stream, they may be not much wider than your rod is long. So um, that's one advantage of these rods. They're shorter, but they cast. That's it. So that's a shorter rod. So it's not a, it's not a 10 foot or 11 foot. And what is the difference between, because one word you used to hear a lot about, you don't hear as much, but like the switch rod, right? How how is this different than say a switch rod? You know, switch rods, you don't hear it anymore. And I'm not an expert on this, but I think the reason is that the lines and and all of this is made possible by the the flock line industry is just 
amazing in the lines that are available now in the light Skagit variety of lines. So I think what used to be a switch rod, say an 11 foot or 12 foot switch rod with the better lines now, you spay cast with that thing. And is in effect to spay, you can cast those. They're rockets. Yeah. Um, so you don't and do single hand casting with it because you've got pretty heavy lines on there unless you were to change the reel and put on a typical double tapered or weight forward fly line, then you could cast it. But those rods don't have removable lower grips. And so you're mm -hmm. dealing with that grip then. Yeah. Um, There's probably lots of overlap. I mean, that's my guess is that I, I think it's just the industry kind of has gone away from switch because it, I don't know, maybe it's been confusing and it's just literally a, a two-handed rod doesn't really matter if you call it a switch. It's it's still you know a two-handed. It's a spade rod, right? It's two-handed spade rod. There are eleven-foot, four-inch spade rods out there now. When loaded with the right line, um, they cast beautifully. Um, yeah, they, they really do. Then they're go-to rods for if you're um, if you have a smaller string. Yeah. What is the? You mentioned lines a couple times. What is? Um, Let's take one of your rods there. So let's just take the really short one. So you, you mentioned the seven and a half foot three weight. Is that so? That would be just for if you want to go in and fish some really tiny kind of um, yeah yeah some tiny streams and and what would be a line that matches up with that? You know the what we have I've experimented with a lot of different weights and for the tip uh, and you know spay lines have multiple segments. They have you have a tip and a head and sometimes a separate running line. Yeah. Um, for the tip on a three weight, you know, a seven and a half foot, 40 grain weight line works well. And then for the head, a 30 foot, you don't really need that much length, but 180 grain, um, light, uh, Skagit line works well. The really cool advantage is you can disconnect that tip and just have a tapered leader off your head, mm -hmm. and then you can control your line in a dinky little stream because you're just flip casting or just light roll casting. Then you get to a larger stream that has still 8 to 10 inch, 12 inch fish in it. You can put your tip back on, hook up your tapered leader, and then do spay casting uh, for those fish. You're going to want some running line on it, too, behind your head, because you may, with that rod, hook into a 20-inch fish, and it's going to take you into what normally be, would be your backing. But with spay casting, you want running line because it's easier to handle and easier to work with. And that can be 20-pound test running line yep. for that rig. Um, and like I said, if you want to do really delicate casting, you can take off the lower grip, change out your spool, and put in a double tapered line and do single hand casting, say for rising fish on a gin clear, calm lake or something. Gotcha. But the advantage is you can do both. Yeah. That's and brilliant. when you can't single hand cast because you've got brush or cliff or some people behind you, you can do spay casting. Yeah. Well, let's take it to the river really quick. So is the San Juan, is that kind of your home river when you think about where you'd be, you know, your kind of number one river out over there? Well, first of all, it gives you several advantages. Um, if you rig up correctly, um, you're into fish. You're, I've never, ever in 30-some years of fishing the San Juan ever been skunked. So you're going to get into fish. The other advantage is, depending on the time of the day, you can be dead drifting, uh, nymph fishing, but then a hatch comes on and you change out and you dry fly fish. Um, you have different locations on the San Juan River that fish differently. You know, the Texas Hole, of course, is famous, having eight to 10,000 or Lord only knows how many fish are in that hole. Um, but you have Betis Bend, where you're going to be almost exclusively dry fly fishing. The, the other thing is, Dave, 
with these rods, the misnomer is that you can't dry fly fish with uh, spay casting. Well, that's not true. You can. Um, if you have a seven and a half or nine foot tapered leader with your tippet on it, you can lay that fly out above the water and have the whole line settle down at the time. And the tip of that line is 10 feet away from the fish you're fishing for. So you're not going to spook that fish with your line. Um, if you make a bad cast, single hand casting, you're going to blow it. Yeah. And the same is true with a bad cast with spay. But you can lay it out above the water and have it settle down, and it's great fun. Yeah, that's it. So let's take it to the – so is the San Juan, is that um, is that the river that you spend most of your time on? No. I spend most of my time on the Rio Grande because it's only half an hour away. The San Juan is three hours away. Um, and so the Rio Grande is a real challenging river. Now, I have been skunked there. Um and it fishes different, differently at different times of the year. We just got through the caddisfly hatch, which occurred perfect because the uh, spring runoff hadn't started. And so you had clear water, fish rising to caddisflies. Now it's kind of blown out. It's muddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're kind of, you know, go to the Red River, which very rarely blows out. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the little feeder streams here. Some of them don't have much snowpack, and so that's three-weight country. The Rio Chiquito, I mentioned that, um, is only 20 minutes from my house. You know, tiny, small fish, but still great fun. Still great fun. Well, let's take it to one of these big – let's say we're – what would be – so you mentioned the 7.5. What was the other uh, length of the the two-handed rod you had? The 9-foot five-weight. Yeah, nine foot five weight, just like your standard, you know, your nine foot five weight, just with a a, basically a two handed rod setup. All right. So on that, the the line is a little heavier. What is a good line? If you're to be out there, like right now, if somebody was going to go to the fly shop and pick up a line for that, what would you, you know, what would you, just to give us some example? If the fly shop carries spay lines, uh, let's just say they're going online just to pick up, they could pick up any line. 30 foot for the head, a 30 foot, 210 grain. So it's 30 grains heavier than the line for the three-weight. And then for the uh, tip, it the best, I believe, is a 10-foot, 80-grain. But you can use an 8-foot, 80-grain, too. That, I cannot tell you uh, how cool it is to cast that rod. I've put it in the hands of people that have never spay cast. And in 20 minutes, they're casting further than they can single-hand casting. Right. And what is your, what would be that line? Is there a brand of line that you use? You know, this is the neat thing is so many companies, uh, namely OPST um, has been a leader in developing light Skagit lines, but Scientific Angler SA is now producing lines. And so are are Rio and Airflow. Yeah. Are, you can get lines from these companies and the cool thing is, next year they'll be better, and the year after that they'll be even better. Um, and the rods are getting shorter because these lines allow you to do what years ago you had to have a thirteen foot rod to do it or a yeah, fifty. That's interesting. Now, yeah, there's this nine weight rod, and the the blank is a carbon fiber blank from. Uh, um, CST, uh, Cylindrical Systems Technology. Yeah, I think that would be good. I think that'd be interesting. Maybe in a little bit, um, we could, if we have time, I'd like to dig into that. That'd be cool. Um, What do you think about taking us to, so you did some, you said 30 casting demonstrations at the, um, at the Denver show. Let's take it to the show for those who weren't at Denver. um, You know, you've got a big casting pond. Let's just go back there. So you're sitting there getting ready to do, you got 20 people watching you. Uh, take us there. What's that look like? What are you saying? Just imagine we're back to that spot. Walk us through that. Yeah, it's a cool thing. The, um, it's pretty long, the casting pool. It's not very deep, just a couple of inches. Uh, but you can demonstrate how to cast this rod uh, with the final move of a spay cast. And Stuart, you probably know this. The, the, initial, move, the initial movements of the line 
and spay casting, I believe, are to get you into position to do either a roll cast or a modified roll cast, but on steroids with uh, spay lines. And so what I was showing people is primarily just a roll cast because there's no sideways movement of the water like you would get in a stream. The advantages of that situation are that it was right next to our booth. So people would come up and look at the rods. Those in the know obviously saw this. these look different in that they have a lower grip on them. And I would just easily take them 30 feet to the casting pool and show them how it casts. The reactions were always positive that people saw this. I let people cast, um, you know, and some people have never spay cast, so their movements are a little awkward, but uh, it became obvious that this, these rods work and work well and that the lines lay out well. Gotcha. So you're sitting there, basically, the demonstration you're, you know, you're teaching people is is kind of the, um, essentially, it's just the, the, the basics of the, the two-handed cat, the forward cast uh, on a spade cast? Right. You can't really put the line to the side and do a snap T to get the line in position to do the roll cast or a modified spade cast or any of the other movements that are common depending on in a stream, depending on the, the water direction and the wind direction. But I could demonstrate the final part of the cast. Uh, and, and also, let me say, I was not one of the instructors um, hired by uh, the fly fishing show. I was just demonstrating our product when people showed interest gotcha. and, when, and when there was room on the casting pond. You've heard about the CRC system from Trestle. I know uh, you've been thinking about it. I know I've talked to a few people out there uh, that have been interested in checking this thing out. It is, uh, if you haven't really dug into it, it's a fully rigged uh, fly rod carrier that's going to protect your rods on the outside of your car. Every CRC system comes with secure mounting clamps, padding in the reel compartment, and their proprietary suspended rod liners. You can leave your gear on your vehicle full-time or quickly pop it off into carry mode. And like I said, I know people are definitely Jones and to check this thing out. Uh, you can head over. Uh, John's got some good videos on how this thing works. You can take a quick look at their website. They've got a bunch of different features that make them stand out. You can check it out. They've got a padded protective no snag reel up design. So you know how that's always a hassle with the old rod carrier where you pull out your rod and then your fly gets snagged. And then you're like, oh my God, how do you get your fly off? In the middle of your liner, you pretty much break it off. So they fix that. And, uh, and they also uh, provide the reels facing up, which actually provides for more protection uh, for your rod, which is great. A lot of good things, a lot of tips and tricks and, uh, and benefits I'm not talking about here. So I want you to head over to wetflyswing.com slash trestle. That's T-R-X-S-T-L-E. And uh, you can check it out right now. Check out some videos, like I said. And you support this podcast by clicking over and checking out Trestle at that link. And then what was your, I'm just curious on your background, because this was a big struggle for me. Still is. A lot of people, you know, spay is, is a challenge because you got like the lines we're talking about can be challenging. All the lengths of the rods can be challenging understanding, right, all this. What was your, um, you know, how did you learn, right, to get into spay? How, how did you, did you teach yourself or did you do like an instruction? Uh, a friend of mine um, said, Larry, you got to do this. And so I cold turkey, I bought a rod and I had a reel that I no longer use. Um, and we went to a lake and my friend John showed me the basics. And then there's videos that you use. And this is something I tell people. There's great videos out there on showing you how to cast. Um, it is, I believe, easier for a beginner, someone who's never fished, to learn spay casting as opposed to two-handed casting. If you and you know this, the timing on the double haul on a single hand casting that takes a long time to feel that to to feel the rod load and when to release when to release the line in your hand. Spay casting, I can teach someone to roll cast in with a spay line, 
in just a few minutes, so long as they leave the line in the water in front of them. In other words, you've got the anchor. And the anchor and the shape of the D loop behind you are key to spay casting. Once you understand that, you're good to go. You're gonna get your line out. You may not be sending it out at championship or tournament quality or length, but you're getting your line out. And eventually you'll, you'll um, you know, you'll get it further and further. I think, Dave, that's one of the hesitancies that people have. They, they're, they've single hand cast for years and years, and it just seems like a big step to change the rod, change the lines, and learn how to cast differently. But I firmly believe this is coming because it's easier, faster, more powerful, just as accurate, and not as tiring. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a winner. And when you stand next in a river to someone that has bay cast all their lives, and they send out a hundred feet of line. It is awesome, just just awesome. Yeah, see that line go up. It's yeah. I think that's kind of cool. I think that's what you know. That's why it's interesting, you know. And that's just fly fishing, right? I mean, you could stick with a single handed rod your whole life and be good with it. And that's great. But if sure. you want to try some new things, test out, you know, the two handed thing. I mean. You know, I got into it because I had, you know, I felt like it was going to help me find steelhead. And that's probably a lot of people do that. But now it's just become a, a new thing, you know, to try out right for trout spay. And you're casting some big bugs now with these big sinking lines. And like you said, the tech. Um, so, no, that's good. And it sounds like you've got a setup there. So if somebody wanted to come in and just grab, um, you know, a setup. Uh, like you said, so so what is the perfect stream for your rods? Because you've got all these different lengths, right? You could take a ten foot, you know, you can get eleven foot spay rod. You know, what would your rod be? What what is the perfect size stream or setup? Is this more for like a smaller uh, wet flies? Um, no, you can. Like I said, I take the five weight rod to the San Juan. There are twenty four inch fish in the San Juan. Uh, normally, you're catching you know, 16 to 18 inch fish, sometimes littler, but normally that's the range of fish um, that you're catching. That's a good size fish on a five weight rod. Um, you do both uh, wet fly, you know, dead drifting with a San Juan worm as an attractor and a size 22 zebra midge as the dropper with a strike indicator. You may put weight on it. So you're basically doing a modified flip all right is that what you're doing mostly are you mostly with that nine foot five weight on the san juan are you doing mostly uh, nymphing or are you doing any swinging mostly nymphing but like i said when you start seeing you know you'll have a billion bugs come off this river at some time there'll be a sheen of bugs on the river you can switch over and do some dry fly fishing and catch fish that are slurping bugs. And you you just make your bug a little more attractive than the hundreds that are surrounding. Right. Is the San Juan, is that river? Because you hear so much about it, you know, this amazing, you just, you just hear a lot about it from around the country. What What is it that on the San Juan that, that makes that one so much, so special over, say, even the Rio Grande, which you hear about as well? But why is the San Juan so unique? Two things. One, constant water temperature because it's a bottom release from the Navajo Reservoir. So water temperatures are hovering right around 40 degrees. And you're in New Mexico. So you may be freezing from the waist down and sweating from the waist up hmm. because, because of, of the warm, you know, it's just warm. It's sunny 300 and some days a year. So what's it like there? What's the, yeah, that's the, that's the amazing thing, right? You're it is New Mexico, so I mean, you get a little bit of a winter there. But what, what's it like, like you know, this time of year? Awesome! It's just awesome. The yeah. the one thing that will happen is at the end of May, typically around Memorial Day, they will release a slug of water to mimic natural runoff, and so it will go from say in years past from say 300 to 500 cubic feet per second to almost 3,000 cubic feet, or over 1,000 cubic feet per second. That then, fishing becomes more challenging for about a month because you can't wade really safely in that river. 
But the word on the San Juan years ago used to be it was the best trout stream in the world in the winter because of the warm conditions. The fish are still feeding. Right. And you can match the hatch. There are little tiny midges that come off. You don't have a caddisfly hatch. You basically don't have much of a mayfly hatch. They're feeding constantly on these either emerging midges or on midges on the surface. Oh, wow. And so, so that's why you fish with size 22, 24, 26, little teeny tiny flies with a 5X or 6X bit. Have you fished that river kind of year-round in all different uh, seasons? Yeah. Yes. Well, what's that? Take us there on that little journey for a little bit. So if we start out now, you mentioned the, the high water. Once the the high water drops down and it gets fishing, is there a time? I mean, what's that look like How, Like, as you get into like June, July, August? Yeah. If you um, died and go to heaven, you couldn't have a better up day up there than when the ant fall happens in early July. The carpenter ants hatch after a, a thunderstorm and they're a terrestrial, but they're not very good flyers and they land in the river and the fish go nuts. And you could throw out a black stick on a hook <laughs> and, catch, really? and catch. Oh, it for two days, wow. it's paradise. And these are all rainbows. These are all basically um, kind of, well, they're, they're stocked, but they're wild, essentially. 90% of the fish you catch are rainbows, but there are brown trout in the lower, um, down below the quality waters that will move up. So every now and then you'll catch a, a big brown. Um, but it's primarily rainbows that you're catching. They introduce them, I think, at about a, a foot or 14 inches, but, you know, there are fish, there's a fish in there called Hank the Tank. He's been caught multiple times. This is a 30-some inch fish that weighs, oh, I wow. don't know how many. Yeah, but he's he's a famous fish that's been caught a few times. Um, so, but getting back to the trip, you leave Taos in the early morning, drive over the Brazos Pass. It's a 10,500-foot pass. Yes, there are mountains in northern New Mexico. Um, drive to Chama and then go through the uh, Apache Reservation and then you're at the San Juan uh, for a day of fishing. There are places to camp. There are places to stay. So you can do multiple day trips. There are numerous guides that will help you uh, on the San Juan. And for the uninitiated, it's a good idea to get a guide the first time you go there because these flies are different and tiny. If you throw out a size 12 parachute atoms, you're not going to catch a fish all day. It's a waste of time. But if you are in the hands of the first time of someone that's been there or a guide, you're going to have an awesome day. Yeah. Yeah. And we, uh, Noted at least one, we had uh, Taylor Strite, who is, uh, I think his son Nick is now running the shop out there. So I know they have some guys. Is there a lot, are there a lot of different fly shops and guides out there? Uh, the only surviving fly shop through COVID has been the Taos Fly Shop with Nick. Oh, wow. So that's the only one left yeah. out there. Yeah, there was another one. And that went out of business actually before COVID yeah. when I first moved here. And I don't even remember the name because it, it, it was gone so quickly. There, these guys are good. I have gu had guide a guide with the Taos Fly Shop in the Rio Grande, because I'd always been skunked, and I got tired of being skunked. And so since then, I have not. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There, there's your best. There's your best advice. You always hear that, right? You, you, we try to tell people that about, especially if you're new because you don't know. But that's probably the best. You know, whatever few hundred dollars or whatever it costs of of money right. you could spend in fly fishing, right? If you're new, you should get a guide, and that'll help you for. It'll, it'll save you years of time, maybe. It yep. It's money in the bank. Plus, you establish contact with the shop. Uh, you know, I do order things online, but I try to support the shop. The local shop as much as I can with flies, tippets, yeah. uh, some clothing. I lost a, a, a net, so I got a net from them rather than getting one online. Yeah. Um, they're good guys. They're very knowledgeable. And right now, they'll take you to feeder streams 
if the Rio's not fishing well. It, it is and can turn uh, really chocolatey during the runoff because of the prevalence of clay in our soils. So, um, you know, I, I tend to avoid it this time of the year, maybe in the hands of a guide, they're much more knowledgeable. Yeah. Uh, that's it. That's it. Well, and I'll put a link to that show. Uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, the shop, but, uh, Taylor, I know has a, a book, kind of a guidebook. It sounded like a really cool book and, uh, well, great book. Yeah. And, and his personality really comes out in it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah. His personality. We, we didn't get into all the, uh, the, uh, sixties, uh, you know, counterculture stuff, but he definitely obviously has a, has a good background there. Uh, but it, it's yeah. interesting, you know, Taos, I think it sounds like that's, what's amazing about it. You know what I mean? Is the, the diversity of people, is that probably the, one of the big things that people really love about that? Yeah. You have the Taos Pueblo is the most continuously occupied site in North America. People have been living there since the 1100s. Oh, wow. You have a Hispanic culture that started here in the late 1500s. So we are on a, a ditch, an acequia, and every year we meet, all the neighbors meet, and we clean it out. And it's primarily Hispanic people. And so I asked the mayodomo, the guy in charge of the ditch, how long have people been doing this? And he said, our records go back only to 1690. Huh. 1690. Wow. This, this community has been working together um, for irrigation. So there are Hispanic names here that dang near go back to the conquistadors. Wow. What do you mean by ditch? What, 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 is the, what do you mean by ditch there? Ditch. I'm sorry. An irrigation ditch. And in Spanish, it's called an acequia. Oh, so you're saying, yeah, obviously agriculture is, is big, you know, yeah. in that part of the world. So, you're, so you've got agricultural ditches, water that's coming right. through. And that, obviously, like you said, the, the tailwater reservoir, a big part of that is, is the water is feeding the ag, right? Uh, right. Yeah. When, uh, as a matter of fact, the San Juan River is diverted once you get to Farmington for irrigation. The whole river? And even before that, um, at Bloomfield, it's it's um, diverted for irrigation. Um, yeah, so they're culturally, um, and then at the turn of the last century, a, a community colony of artists moved here, the Taos Art Society, and world-class art was being done here in Taos. So you have a kind of a tri tricultural um, population here of Hispanics, Native Americans, and Anglo's that have been coexisting for centuries. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it is. It, there are great museums. There are great art galleries. There's great food because the northern New Mexico food is different. Um, it's stunningly beautiful. I look out at the Taos Pueblo Mountain, and it's a 11,000 mount, foot mountain, and right behind it is Mount Wheeler, which is 13,000 feet. So, so, and we're at 7,000 feet elevation of Taos, so it never gets hot here. Yeah, you're way up there. And like you're yeah. saying, the the San Juan though is dropping down off, you know, down the lower kind of the lower basin. Uh, yeah, it's about five thousand feet. Five thousand. Well, let's go back to yeah. San Juan. So we were talking in the summertime, and we were, you know, you mentioned some ants, the ant fall. What happens as you get into like July, August, and then you get in towards like September into the fall? What, what's that look like? It's great. It continues to be midge fishing. It just doesn't matter. You can go there any time. And you'll change the midge, the dropper that you're using. You know, you'll change colors. You may go uh, to a darker color. Well, the zebra midge mm -hmm. is pretty dark. Go to reds or to light grays. Um, the names of which I don't know because yeah. there are just many of them. Um, you may change your attractor from a San Juan worm to an egg pattern. Oh, right. You know, to a woolly bugger. And early in the morning, you may try dragging woolly buggers deep or bead-headed woolly buggers or other, uh, you know, small streamers through the, the deeper sections and you'll hook something. Then you switch and you'll have hatches in February. One of the best days I've ever had fishing was in a snowstorm in February 
during a hatch, and it was a fish a cast. And and we finally got tired and left. Yeah. And about three hours. So you're able to, with those midges, fish, uh, you're able to fish below the surface and even and on the surface. Sure, because they're coming to the surface. It's not unusual, Dave, to look downstream and see 20 or 30 heads of fish slurping midges. Just They don't jump that much. They just come up and slurp. And that's, it's not unusual to look down and you have five fish swimming around you. There are a lot of fish in this river. Yeah, there's just a lot of fish. And and then then as you take it through the winter, and that's the other cool thing. Again, maybe the best part of this is that in the wintertime, October, November, December, January, when it's really cold and nasty in a lot of places, you could go here and just basically still fish midges and be good with it. Yeah, and have and have sections of the river all to yourself. Because, you know, a lot of the summer business are tourists or people that come here during their uh, summer break um, and the the pressure drops off in the winter. Um, you know, like any winter fishing, when it gets so cold, your guides are freezing up and you're, um, yeah. you might want to think about it. But yeah, you, you still get some of that, right? You still get a little bit of a winter there. Yeah, I've had guides freezing there in the winter, um, but we caught fish, so... Uh, there was about a two-year period I tried to go once a month, every month of the year. Um, and then I said, well, okay, I've done that. Now I'll just go a few times a year. Oh, so what did you do? You went how frequently? Every month for two years. Oh, every month. So you went every month. This is great. So for a period of time, you went every month for two years. And let's let's go back to that period. What was that when you did that? So if you're into... You just described that. What was that like? Did you get things dialed in pretty well? Yeah. You know, you're going to have different midges coming off in different times of the year. Uh, you may, uh, your attractor may be a red annelid, or you may be using a red annelid as your primary dropper. You'd use different sizes. Um, those are going to be used more, I think, in colder weather initially. Um, but a San Juan worm will always attract fish. And during the day, you may have two or three or a half dozen fish take the worm. And then most of your fish are going to be on what you use as a dropper. Um, you then uh, be ready to go when a hatch happens because they only last, you know, an hour or two. And then the fish stop and they do something else. So if you're dry fly fishing in when they're not hatching, it's going to be slow, but when they are hatching, it's awesome. Uh, and, yep. and you and the fish, the road conditions are usually pretty good. You're not going to have, uh, in New Mexico, you're not going to have snow covered roads for very long. Um, that usually melts off. Um, so, and there are places to stay from Albuquerque or Santa Fe, it's a long one day trip as it is from Taos. Many people choose to stay the night and in the summer there are campgrounds and you can drag, take a tent or a trailer up and spend a few days there. Um, I highly recommend that. And uh, if those of you that are uh, listening have a trip planned for Southern Colorado, it's worth coming across the border. The San Juan River, San Juan River is only just a few miles south of the state line. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Colorado folks come down all the time from Durango yep. uh, or from Denver. Uh, that's a longer day trip, and yeah. we'll spend, the, you know, I assume they spend a night or two there. Fairflies was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to tying flies and getting fly tying materials and products. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized groups both around the U.S. and abroad. They're experts, innovators, and artisans of exceptional fishing products. I connected with Jeff quite a while back, and we've been in touch along the way, and it's good to have uh, Fairflies on. I know they've got a great movement, and I am super excited to get out there and, uh, and share more of their message. Their 5D brushes make fly tying fast and enjoyable at all skill levels. Uh, Fairflies has replaced uh, craft fur with their own fly fur, a product that is innovative and awesome to use. They also are running the show at Wasatch Custom Angling Tools, where they have over 50 tools, fly tying tools that you could use that are all beautiful and well-designed. 
a true do-it-yourself company helping you tie better flies faster. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash fairflies right now. That's F-A-I-R-F-L-I-E-S. Check it out. Support fairflies right now. And so if you were going to go out or if you were going to tell somebody, you know, a, a good time, what would you recommend if you had to pick one time during the year? Well, I would do the summer and I would do wait about a, you know, two or three weeks after the river has come down. It tends to, when they raise the river, it tends to disturb the fish yeah. for a while. Just, just wait a little bit. So that will put you into early June and um, that's when I would suggest coming. If you can keep your ear to the ground and, and if you mm-hmm. can ready to go in a day's notice, you know, keep calling Abe's fly shop or another fly shop there and see when, if the ant fall has happened and then get there as soon as possible. They, the fish have a memory, even though the ant fall only lasts a day, maybe two you can still fish those ants for a couple of days after yep. the event, right? And and have a ball. So it's Abe's. So Abe's Fly Shop is a local one there that can get you some insight. It's been there ever since the dam was built, or shortly thereafter. Um, it's a standard, you know. I um, and there Rizzuto's is I think that's its name is another fly shop, and they're equally as knowledgeable. Yeah, perfect. So this is good. All right, we got a couple of resources going here, and like you said, t- bring some bring some dries, but I'll definitely bring your uh, your nymph game. Is is Euro nymphing uh, pretty popular down there? In some of the runs, of course, where you don't have to cast very far, uh, and if you're just going to fish a run right in front of you, that's basically what you're doing with a nine foot rod uh, with a reel. But there's no reason why Euro nymphing wouldn't work. And I would think it would be very effective because the presentation is different and uh, it's a more natural presentation of the, of the, of the nymph. Um, and sure. This is good. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to, we're going to take a quick little break. We're gonna, we're doing a, um, a challenge here. It's called the top fly challenge. Um, and we're going to have at uh, wetflyswing.com slash top fly uh, we're going to have a little page where people, listeners can sign up and, and kind of entering their top fly. So what I'm going to do here, Larry, is just ask you, and maybe I could guess what your top fly would be. But if you had one fly for the San Juan only, one throughout the year, you could only pick one, what would it be? The zebra midge. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Zebra midge. Not, not the San Juan worm. No, the zebra midge. Good. Okay. Uh, it's good to go. So the zebra midge will be entered into this contest, and we're going to do a, and we're going to do a little challenge here to see. Uh, let the listeners pick out of uh, a few of our guests here, and then I'm going to actually tie the pattern that they choose, and oh. <laughs> and, we're, and we're going to see if it's a hard one because if it's really hard, I might sh- uh, really struggle on on YouTube. Okay, a twenty and size twenty six zebra mid. There you go. So twenty six. All right. So we got that, and then uh, then we got Tim Camisa, who's been on before. I just chatted with him. We're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna do a, a video for his channel, and then he's gonna actually I think hopefully if I do a really bad job, he's gonna tie the pattern. So okay. just that, we're getting this started, Larry. This is the first uh, time we've done this little uh, challenge, but uh, so we'll add you as the first um, challenger, uh, adding the zebra midge, which is a, obviously a great pattern. All right. Well, uh, let's see here. So what have we left off? I love the fact that we've gone to the San Juan because I've never fished it and I'm planning uh, a trip out through there and I would love to get to that river. And it sounds like June would be a good time. Camping's good. I mean, what, what's the downside? It sounds like it's all upside around there. Like any, any downside, any, any negatives about fishing out there? If you, if you go to the Texas hole, that's the first huge hole on the river. There can be a lot of guys fishing there. So it's not really combat fishing, but it's not going to be a wilderness experience. Um, I would, if you get there early in the morning, Dave, go there, you'll hook into a few fish and then go someplace else. Um, the lower flats or up above the Texas hole, there's a lot of structured water that um, is good fishing or go down to Betis Bend or even further down to, um, you know, things, uh, runs before you leave the quality waters. Um, And you have about five miles to fish of catch and release. Um, That's all really good fishing. 
so the 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 downside is if you if you only target the Texas hole, you're going to be with maybe a dozen other people on that hole. It's huge. It's 100 yards long, 15 or 20 feet deep. It's 30 yards across. You can't wade in the middle of, oh, and also there can be a lot of drift boats that will park in it with their customers early on to get them started. So you can't really get to some of the runs. But then they normally leave, uh, and that's fine. You know, they, they want their customers to get into fish. So I would avoid that as far as a, an all-day thing. Um, go there, catch a few fish, and leave. Yeah, go there, catch a few. Okay, good. And and I obviously, you know, there's a lot of uh, different uh, parts of the year we're kind of leaving out, but this is just kind of hitting the surface. I want to touch right back on um, the Los Alamos. That was interesting. You mentioned earlier that's kind of what got you into that area. And this is the Los Alamos for, you know, probably some people know, right, the – it wasn't that where the whole um, the uh, atomic bombs and stuff w- were created there, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they're filming a movie there right now about Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah, Oppenheimer, exactly. He was the the genius German uh, scientist who uh, who essentially yeah created the atomic bomb that that wiped out. The, well, I guess kind of ended. Maybe you could say that ended World War Two, right? Yeah, it's con- certainly a controversial subject. And Los Alamos National Lab has continued on through the decades. It, for me, I'm an environmental scientist. I'm a soil microbiologist. I worked on uh, uh, pollution issues and cleanup issues, um, not at the lab site, but at other places. Um, it was a great place to work. Um, I have a lot of friends from that work. I worked there almost 30 years, Dave. Um, but I always came to Taos to go skiing, and I'm a, I, I, I've skied like fly fishing. I've skied, well, all of my life, not just my adult life, um, or when I could first start skiing. All right. And Taos, Taos Ski Valley, on a good day, I would put it against any place in North America. Huh. It, it is real good. Good snow. So, so then I was coming north to ski. Coming north to whitewater kayak, I used to be a kayaker, coming north to fly fish, so Jackie and I went, well, why don't we just move north and shorten our commute? Yeah. Um, And then we have just fallen in love with this community. Um, I lived in Los Alamos for that time. I did take us about 10 years that I lived in Santa Fe, but still worked at Los Alamos, then moved back. Uh, for the final 10 years of my career, mostly because of my son and education opportunities in Los Alamos. Um, It's a different community. Uh, It's a very safe community. But I grew up in northern Idaho, in Sandpoint, Idaho. And Taos, in many ways, reminded me of where I grew up. Small ski town, lots of outdoor opportunities, uh, culturally varied um, and so on. Yeah, that's cool. That's really yeah. cool. So, so you mentioned the pollution. I, we have a little segment called the, the conservation minute, which is, I always try to dig in when we can. What's the, talk about that a little bit on the, on the pollution issues you dealt with. What was something that you, you know, was there something you can highlight on that? Yeah, I was working initially with how soil microorganisms could affect the movement of radioactive nucleotides. Oh, wow. Like, like plutonium, americium, neptunium. And one thing led to another, and I switched out of that. I became more interested in just basic research, and I moved into microbial effects on the uptake of iron. And I got into iron because iron is chemically similar to plutonium. And it was much easier to work with And then I became way more interested in iron uptake. That's not a pollution issue, but it is a nutritional issue. Iron is an essential element of most, if not all, living systems. And how it gets from the soil, the geosphere, into living systems, the biosphere, wasn't well understood. And so my last 10, 15 years of my career, I focused on iron uptake. But Dave, if I get more into it, you're going to lose all your readers. 
No, I don't think so. I think I think this is good. This is what I love about the podcast is that, you know, you take a tangent and you go down it and I usually let it go a little bit because, you know, I mean, the great thing about fly fishing, one of them, especially for people that are new, don't understand is that, you know, there's a big conservation um you know, a contingent, right? People know that obviously you want to protect your fish species and the best way to do that is to protect the natural resources um, around them. And uh, you're obviously talking about, I mean, plutonium, that's a whole another level of, and I, you know, we're not going to get into that because I mean, we, you know, we've got our own sort of issues with like um, nuclear, you know, the Hanford nuclear reservation, right? Oh, that's right. So yeah. you've got, you've got all these things going here. Plus I'm sure you've got your own nuclear things out there in the testing zone of the, you know, the atomic right. bomb. Um, but um, so we're not going to dig in that, but it really is really interesting because I mean, you're, it sounds like you're talking about something that, I mean, obviously iron is an essential part of human life. So, Oh, yeah. Um, where would you? So again, so if somebody wants to get nerding out and go deeper in this, where would you send them? If did you have some research out there, or is there like? Oh yeah, you can Google my last name, Hersman, H E R S M A N, and you should come up with publications and a publication list. Okay. I yeah, it became just a fascinating um, area of of research that paired me with some really good scientists at universities particularly at Notre Dame and the University of California at Berkeley, but others as well, New Mexico Tech, yeah. uh, University of Tennessee. And so I had active collaboration with faculty at um, in different schools, was you know on graduate student committees. Um, I was a committee member for some graduate students. And it, it, it became... I, it was a game changer for me in my professional career once I went to iron. Um, yeah, Dave, if we take iron away from you, you'd live less than 30 seconds. No kidding. Because you can't transport oxygen anymore to your Oh. Yeah. Wow. So that's why the supplements are right. So what? Are, what's the normal thing, uh, iron, people are getting iron from what? Like what, what are they... Oh uh, well, you you can't you can't put a nail in your mouth and suck on it and get in. <laughs> no, get it. So don't do that. No. But iron has to be, and it's a technical term, chelated. It has to be bound to an organic molecule like citrate. Oh, so yeah. iron citrate. Um, yeah. Then yep. you. So you're orange. So you get an orange. Yeah, and then you can take it into your system. And then you and you have an absolute essential need for iron. Um, I don't really know much about human metabolism. I work more with microorganisms, but I don't know if iron is recirculated in your system. Like when your blood cells break down, do you capture that iron oh, or is okay. it passed out of your body? I, I think you have to take it because you have to have a constant source of iron. So. You yep. are losing iron with time. Huh. The, <laughs> the real bugaboo, in, in just briefly, yeah. iron in a soil is tightly bound to minerals, hematite, gertite, ferrihydrite. It is extremely insoluble, and it was never clear what dissolved that iron to get it from microorganisms to plants. And so that's what I worked on, the microbial mineral interface and how iron move from the soil from a mineral hematite to the microorganism and then many microorganisms live in the root zone of plants and plants they themselves can acquire iron directly by different mechanisms but it wasn't understood uh, how microorganisms acquired iron from minerals that was the basis of my work uh, I did a sabbatical at UC Berkeley with a fabulous scientist, Professor Garrison Spazito. I learned so much from Gary and then returned to the lab. He and I collaborated for a few years, and then um, I continued on until my retirement. That's great. And as the general idea, just on the, the large, high scale, is you know, you got these microorganisms that essentially can, you know, you have pollution and then they can kind of eat up the pollution and clean it up. Is that kind of the, the big picture? Yeah, bioremediation is focused on perhaps forming a bio barrier that you have a pollutant like a radionuclide moving through the soil and you have an enhanced zone where you're, where you're adding nutrients to the soil 
to increase the biological community in that soil, and then they absorb the plutonium as it as it moves by. Right. That's one scenario. The other one would be you could then some have some sort of active removal of the bound uh, radionuclide to the microorganisms. A little more far-fetched with that, but that was the gist of the research is yeah. the interaction of microorganisms to stop the transport of a radionuclide or other metals, chromium or cadmium, uh, uh, other toxic metals. Gotcha. Okay, good. And we'll, we'll put a, I'll, I'll look up in the show notes. We'll get a video, maybe to something here. And then also Oppenheimer. I'm sure there's a, some other older movies or something. We'll, we'll get a little something. Yeah. Opera, yeah. So those for the newbies, so the new, the younger generation that maybe don't know that history, we'll, we'll tie something in there. Yeah, this should be a pretty interesting movie. There's some heavy hitter actors in it. Oh, cool. So this is hopefully going to be a good study on a very significant person who, of course, during the McCarthy era, became yeah. extremely controversial. That's right. Yeah, the McCarthy era. That was an interesting pot time in the country as well. Yeah. This is good. Um, well, we're going to take it out of here pretty quick, Larry. I just wanted to... Um, I just want to touch on, again, you know, you mentioned, so we're talking about you had this whole career. Why did you go from, you got this whole career, why not just, you know, retire, wrap it up and be like, okay, I'm enjoying the, the mountains. And, and instead, you actually created a business around the fly rods. Why, why did you go into a business there? Well, I thought, you know, I could have stopped when I built a rod that I could use. But then I got to thinking, you know, there may be other people with impaired shoulder problems or limited strength, like children. Uh, some women, uh, you know, smaller people, you know, small man or a, a woman can't cast all day long. And maybe if this gets people either into fishing or back into fishing that have had an injury and they can't fish. And it turns out that has been true. People that I've that have got these rods, a lot of them got them be for those exact reasons, both men and women. And so that's why I thought. You know, this is this may be something that uh, other people can benefit by. And then kind of the collateral uh, development was this is better. This this works better than single hand casting. And uh, I eventually think it's going to happen because it makes sense. Yeah. And is there part of that must be, you know, some sort of a profit margin sort of thing in there? How, how has that been trying to build an actual profitable yeah. business? Yeah, my wife is, I'm glad she's not in the room. <laughs> she, she would be rolling her eyes right now. I'm just getting started, Dave. Yeah. Gotcha. So I have really turned the profit corner. Yeah. But if I'm a retired scientist, I, you know, I don't want to say I don't need the money. That's not why I'm into it. I'm into it to build a better product um, and for people to get back or to enjoy fishing when they, for one reason or another, they're not able to right now. Yeah, that's cool. No, it sounds like you got a good, a good mission there. And we'll, um, we'll definitely, uh, get people out if they want to take a look, uh, at, uh, tausrods.com. Um, well, before we get out of here, just, uh, give us, uh, maybe a heads up as you look out from now, you know, maybe over the next year, we're kind of into heading into, you know, May, June, what, what's the next year look like for you and, and what you're doing with all these rods? What I will do is, um, and my wife and I have decided this, if we start getting, uh, significant orders, um, I will contract people to build rods. I am not going to build any more rods. I will teach people how to do it because these are high quality rods and they can't go out the door if the wraps are not pretty. Mm. Uh, if, so um, are you building all these rods right now? Yeah, I built them all. Oh, wow. So these are yeah. all yours. So you've got a background in custom rod building, which is another skill. <laughs> it's, it was um, hit or miss. I had some instruction early on. The first few rods, uh, the ones I gave away were kind of ugly um, because, you know, the wraps are hard to do. You're getting the right balance of the, of, the, um, of the epoxy finish, getting that on right so it's smooth. But now I know what I'm doing. Um, and I will teach people and contract, you know, a couple people uh, initially if this takes off. Um, 
and then we'll take it from there. Um, I believe in this, but I'm not sure at 73 years old that I want to keep building rods. I want to go fishing. Exactly. So, um, so we'll see where this goes. Dave. Yeah, this is cool. Uh, no, I think, I think it, it's a cool story. Listen, if everybody there listening sends in orders, then Taos rods will take off. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, we'll do our best to get some people out there at least check your site out and, and take a look. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to do it justice. Uh, you know, uh, some of these conversations because, you know, I'm not a super expert on the spay game. I mean, I, I've had a lot of guests on that have, have talked about it and I know that, you know, I, I know for sure the trout spay thing is going to keep growing because it's just, you know, it's a new, it's for sure. It's just a new thing. Everybody loves, you know, a new technique that works. It really works. Um, I, I mean, I, I wish, uh, I wish we'd have had longer you and I together at the fly show. I could have shown you, and I think you'd be, uh, you know, you you you'd be an authority on it now. Right. Well, I've I've got time. Maybe when I when I hit uh, hit up uh, New Mexico, I can swing by and connect with you. Maybe you can give me a, a quick lesson. <laughs> well, I'd love that. Love to see you again, Dave. Good. Good. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Larry. And uh, I, we didn't dig into your Adobe home, which was another topic I was curious about. But <laughs> Digging is a good term, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Larry. And uh, thanks for your time today. We'll, we'll keep in touch with you and uh, look forward to seeing all, your, uh, all the movement over the next year. All right, Dave. And thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. So there it is. Dilution is the solution to pollution. I'm not sure if that's true. But, but that's what we're going with here. Uh, wetflyswing.com slash 329, 329 will get you the links and everything. Hopefully some videos. Uh, maybe we'll have a video of, um, of something from Los Alamos. That's a, definitely a secretive place. I would love to uh, dig into that. We've still got the top fly challenge going. Uh, wetflyswing.com slash top fly. If you want to enter your top fly and win some swag, some flies right now, you can give it a shot. Fun way to find out and vote on your favorite fly, your top fly right now. I'm going to highlight one recent book, one guest. I'm just looking at the shelf. We got Landon Mayer's Guide uh, Guide Flies. That's one we had Landon Mayer on a second time. That was a good episode, and he highlighted his new book. So, if you want to check out that book, uh, I'll put a link to that Landon Mayer episode. And uh, he's got a bunch of great pictures, a bunch of great ideas. And this one we didn't dig in. I love how we don't always dig in totally to the tips and tricks on this episode. We kind of took a, we were going down one path and then we kind of um, kind of tweaked it and went down. Uh, I hope it was interesting for you to hear some of the um, some of the little side tangents we took along the way. So, so that's it. I'm gonna get off to the next one. We are going on to 3:30. We're moving into the next one, 3.30. What do we got left? We got some good stuff in the tank. I'm going to give you a quick bonus right now because I know what's coming up. And just for listening to this very end of this episode, I'm going to let you know what's next. So next week, we've got Andy Mill, who has a massive uh, fly fishing podcast. That is an interesting episode if you haven't heard of Andy. He uh, was an Olympic athlete uh, in skiing, um, and he's got a bunch of uh, great stories that was awesome, and then we're gonna dig right back into it. We're gonna we're gonna get back into a little bit of conservation, and then we got a big surprise coming for you in a couple weeks. This is massive, a massive uh, TV and movie star that we were having on the show. So stay tuned for that. All right, hope you have a good day. Hope you have a good night or afternoon, and I'm looking forward to catching you online or on the river. Check in with me, wet fly swing anytime. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.